Welcome to Accelerating Government with ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Now your host, Dave Winogren. Welcome. It's great to have you with us for another episode of Accelerating Government. For over 40 years, the American Council for Technology and Industry Advisory Council has served a unique position in the federal marketplace as a nonprofit whose purpose is to bring together government and industry leaders to accelerate government mission outcomes through collaboration, leadership, and education. On today's episode, we're going to spotlight innovation in the federal technology market and then have a conversation on technology leadership and careers. I'll be joined today by MITRE Executive Jim Cook, former NASA CIO Renee Wynn, and former DHS CIO Richard Spires. Innovation. It's a phrase you'll find running rampant through the federal technology market. Where do I find it? How do I get some? How can my organization be more innovative? What's precluding our adoption of innovative approaches and solutions? Seems like across government, we've been on a quest for innovation. And as you'll hear today, there's a lot to be excited about. For this year's ACT-IAC Innovation Awards, we received almost 170 nominations, all great examples of real-world solutions already making a difference. That said, though, sometimes the quest is harder than it should be. While great ideas are being generated in tech corridors and startups, well-established federal contractors are also delivering important innovations. And we need to recognize that our troubles in finding innovation are often far more hampered by how we ask for things rather than who we ask. Innovation is easier to find if we embrace performance-based managed services, prefer statements of objectives to rigid statements of work, value rather than penalize alternative proposals, and incentivize and demand innovation in our procurements. So let's get to it. Renee Wynn is the CEO of RP Wynn Consulting, a longtime government technology leader, most recently serving as the CIO of NASA, and a past president for the American Council for Technology. Welcome, Renee. Thank you, Dave. It's great to be here to be part of this event, especially talking about innovation in the federal government. It is innovation that makes a difference in the federal government actually has a long history in providing innovations. Having recently retired from the iconic NASA federal agency, uh, where I got to see up close where science fiction becomes fact every day. We will get more into that because that is exactly what we want to talk about today. I'm also joined for this segment by Jim Cook, Vice President for Strategic Engagement and Partnerships at MITRE, and also the Chair of ACT-IAC's Institute for Innovation. Welcome, Jim. Thanks for having me on again today, Dave. It's great to be here with you and Renee. It's great to have you with us. You recently served as judges for the ACT-IAC 2021 Innovation Awards. What was that like, and what were some of your takeaways from the judging experience? Let's start with you, Renee, and then we'll turn to Jim. So my first thought when I opened up and saw 170 plus nominations was, okay, I'm training for the marathon here and we're going to go out and do this one mile at a time and build my endurance. And in part why I had to take that was not just the number that existed, but the human brain gets tired. And so I had to acknowledge sort of my own endurance in making sure that I gave you know, my best effort to this. I'm a first timer. You probably should have called Jim in a panic on what are you expecting here from us? But I chose to just do this by myself in a bite-sized way. And I think as I walked away from it, one, I was really glad I did it. You know, trying to balance doing a few a day and giving my best going forward. I also started from the back and went forward since one number one and two and three always get such great reviews. I went ahead and started at I think it was number 182 or something like that, where I began my journey. And I really enjoyed it. And besides 
pushing myself to do some things that I hadn't really done before, it really served as a, a mode of inspiration for what was going around in the federal government, especially during COVID, right? We are now a year past it. The, the innovations were presented to us at the year increment, you know, the year mark. And I was just so excited about what I was reading and very inspired by it. And the breadth of innovation and the way people think about innovation was just really good to read about since I'd been out for a while. I was just really happy for my colleagues in the public sector as well as in the private sector. Yeah, there really were a lot of great ideas submitted. And with the last name of Wondergren, I appreciate you going to the end of the list to start reviewing things. <laughs> so, Jim, how about you? What were some of your takeaways from the judging experience? Well, it was very similar to Renee's. I've been doing these innovation awards since we created them probably close to 10 years ago. And it's always amazing to look at the breadth and depth of creativity in our space. But this year, as Renee said, was particularly compelling given that much of what we saw was created, tested, and applied during COVID, sometimes in spite of, oftentimes because of, the threat posed by the pandemic. And to do what these nominees did in this unprecedented work environment really made it hard to go through this process and down-select to a reasonable number. It was just very impressive body of work, especially considering the context in which it was done. Excellent. While, while we're on topic with you, Jim, what were some of the top trends that you saw, both maybe within the award nominations, but also more broadly as you survey the market? The things that struck me as particularly interesting trends were much greater use of robotics technology across very different and diverse set of applications. There was a large number of RPA or robotic process automation, not innovations, everything from administrative functions to supply chain but also the way robotics was being used in other areas to do physical inspections in dangerous and time-consuming applications as well. I think there was also a healthy number of data analytics innovations. And then one that really stood out for me, the third one that really stood out for me was the way sensor technology was being used in healthcare, in the environmental areas, and in many non-DOD applications sometimes in very interesting and novel ways. How about you, Renee? What were some of the trends you saw? Adding to what Jim said, and maybe even just a couple of amplifications on that one, was the robotic processing. Saw a lot of that going on, which is really good. In the federal government, there's limited resources, so why not use your resources in the best way and augment that with a digital employee to do that? And I think that's just really good approach, especially when the CARES Act came out, right? That was additional work to several federal agencies. People depended upon fast and accurate processing, and, and that's what we saw in most cases. And then that was brought to folks by the robotic processing that went along with that. A lot of focus on customer experience. And we all have a customer experience outside the government. We bring that expectation to our government. And we saw a number of projects both serving externally, like a federal government service, but also there was focus on the employees themselves and trying to help them with their processes internally to make their lives a lot better, especially since so many of them were balancing their hats all in that same moment from being parent to being a partner to being a worker all of that without commuting, which at the time probably felt really good, but it also got to be very complicated when the, the line between who you were was very thin. It was actually just a door threshold was really the only line that existed. 
having seen many a child and dog and cat in any meeting, which was great to see. But the focus on internal was really heartening to me because that's an important part in order to serve. You've got to be well served with that one. I saw a lot of security near and dear to my heart, you know, having faced Congress a couple of times on cybersecurity. I was very heartened to hear a couple of those and really focused down to network traffic and really get into what's important versus that which was noise. And then the final point of emphasis is the amount of public and private partnership that went on, which is really what we see in ACT-IACT. And I was just delighted to see the coming together of both those entities to make great things happen for our public. And you have a, you know, you have a lot of experience with RPA and NASA trailblazer in that work when you were there. But it is everything we do in RPA gets a lot of attention from the government. It does. I, I got to remind folks that, you know, there's artificial intelligence on Mars. You know, what's holding us back here in the, on terra firma? And then that's partially because it's not as if we can send up. A, right now, we can't quite send a technician to work on Perseverance. We've got to be able to do, we've got to get Perseverance to fix herself whenever she needs to. As we get ready to wrap up our first segment, let me just like push a little farther and say, if there's any other success from the experience, like something you saw that you'd like to highlight, or we had a lot of ideas that came around COVID that were really about helping to blaze a new way of doing work. And I'd hate to have those things be lost. So, uh, so maybe like a lesson learned from the experience, maybe with a COVID focus. Jim, we'll go to you first, and then we'll wrap up with Renee. The lesson learned that I would take away, and I think it'll get us into a larger discussion about innovation, is the large number of submissions that that were created because of the pandemic itself. And so it's often said that real innovation oftentimes requires a burning platform. And so the pandemic was that and more for all of us. And it was a forcing function to find not just new opportunities, but it was a problem that was bearing down on us and people across the spectrum of academic, federal, state, and local level really came together and found ways of applying existing technology or pre-existing solutions to tackle this problem. And so the lesson learned for me is how do you bottle that and institutionalize that? Can we do that? in the absence of a crisis, because people really responded to this and the caliber, the quality of innovations that were submitted were very, very high. I'd like to, I'd like to talk about how we make that the norm versus the exception. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we'll continue our innovation discussion with Renee Wynn and Jim Cook. I'm Dave Wintergren, and you're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. I'm Dave Wintergren, CEO of ACT-IAC, and on the first half of today's show, we're talking about innovation, where to find it and how to benefit from it. I'm joined for the conversation by two outstanding federal technology leaders, Renee Wynn, CEO of RP Wynn Consulting, former NASA CIO and past president of the American Council for Technology, and Jim Cook, Vice President for Strategic Engagement and Partnerships at MITRE, and chair of ACT-IAC Institute for Innovation, Renee and Jim, let's continue our conversation. As we look beyond the awards program, what are some of the sources of innovation that you're excited about? Renee, we'll start with you. So before I go into the sources of innovation that excites me, I, I wanna start it by going back to two awards that really struck me as the direction that technology innovation ought to go. The first one is specifically to COVID and it was done by the city of New York. 
and they provided tablets to individuals, actually 10,000 tablets, including internet access during COVID. Why is that important? It's very early on in COVID that we understood that mental health depended upon being part of a community. And when you're physically cut off from a community, then how are you going to gain that access? Well, if you've always done a physical access, you might not have had the computer devices in your house or even had the internet in your home in order to create that connection. And New York City jumped right in front of this and provided tablets, to, especially to older citizens of the city, in order to give them access to friends and family, plus access to services that they might need to take care of themselves during the COVID. So I was really excited about that because to me, it just spoke dignity. Our government should provide dignity to those that they serve. And the other one I wanted to highlight is also about dignity, but not COVID. And that is on human trafficking. Victims would get interviewed over and over and over again about the treachery of being human, being a, a victim of human trafficking. And the Shepherd case management system made it so it was interview less, gave more dignity to the victim and the circumstances the individual went through and not making them relive it too much to the point where it would, you know, create anxiety by even just working with your government, trying to get a case prosecuted or trying to get the services that you need to get yourself back on your feet after being a victim of such a horrific crime. So again, the government providing dignity through their services was through innovation and technology. Um, so that was, those were two that I really liked on the awards, very different focus, but the top line was definitely, you know, giving back in a way where people are treated well in a process. And so in terms of sort of sources and, and going forward, I think right now we're at the point where we want to see the acceleration piece with artificial intelligence and the robotic processing. And so I'd like to see my government colleagues continue and, and my private sector colleagues continue to focus on that and accelerate and expand that in order to continue to provide a positive and dignified experience to those that we serve. Fabulous, Renee there. You know, powerful stories that you shared. Jim, Jim, how about you? What are some examples of uh, sources of innovation that you're excited about that you're seeing across the private sector and federal market? Well, one of the things that, that has excited me, and, and it actually did show up in the nominations, is the growing partnerships with startup accelerators. There were several nominations that were submitted by startups that were working with accelerators uh, both here in our region and in San Antonio, working Fort San Antonio group. So I believe that that is, uh, I'm excited about the, the growing interest in partnering with accelerators on behalf of government and industry. Uh, the new accelerators that are starting up, the university's role in, uh, in, in that whole trend. Because to me, I think the, um, you know, innovation is not necessarily invention. It's the novel application of something that already exists. And startups are very, very good at this. And they are lean. They're built for agility. And I think that's why you, we saw in the nominations and I see in other instances that I work in my day job in, in partnerships, this growing interest in working with startups and growing interest in the part of startups in working in the federal space. 
So, I mean, one quick example, I know we're running out of time, but one quick example is a group that, that I'm working with now that actually presented at one of our past, one of our past conferences, I believe it was at the Igniting Innovation Conference last year, a small group called Epistemics that was actually a spinoff from University of Pittsburgh. They've done a lot of work around synthetic models using synthetic models of population data in the public health space, but they're now applying that same data set and new models to social and racial equity and measuring that at a, at, a, at a community level. So they're able to pivot very, very quickly and figure out how to use what they do in a completely different context. And uh, I'm excited about that. And I'm, I'm, I'm really glad to see the government and industry, uh, private sector part, uh, companies really engaging more with that, with that community. Maybe let's turn our attention a little bit about, uh, you know, in my opening, I just kind of flipped it sometimes you have to think more about like how you ask for things than necessarily who you ask, because there's lots of great sources of innovation. But if you, you know, if you ask for things the wrong way, you won't get the answer that you seek. So maybe let's talk for a minute or two about the challenges that government agencies face, particularly, you know, are there acquisition best practice ideas or other ways to engage the private sector so that we, you know, get the best of both minds. Renee pointed out earlier about the power of government and industry collaboration, which music to my ears, of course. And so um, we'll, we'll stay with you, Jim, and then we'll, we'll go back to Renee uh, ideas around challenges and, and how to face them and advice about how to do acquisition in an agile and nimble way? Sure. Um, I think that there's probably two big challenges. There's, there's, there's a few others, but the two that I kind of focus on uh, is uh, one is culture. And I know that sounds a bit like a throwaway line, but what I really mean there isn't that people don't want to do new things. It's just that there's inherent conflict sometimes in the culture and the environment in which they work. For instance, innovation is risky, but the oversight environment that our federal partners work in doesn't tolerate or reward risk-taking, especially if you don't fully succeed. So uh, there's also this comfort with the known way of doing things and change itself is personally disruptive. Um, as an aside, if you want to dig into that topic, you can study David Rock or study John Cotter and the, and the work of those two respected um, experts, and they talk a lot about the neuroscience of change and why it is difficult for us as individuals, which also then expands out to the organization. So the culture is, is, is a factor that we need to continue to work on being more accepting of risk-taking. Another challenge is process and policy, and you've kind of touched some on that in terms of acquisition process. I'm a big believer in challenge-based acquisitions. I think stating a problem versus finding a solution is a much more effective way, and I think um, a much more effective way of getting innovation so long as once you do your selection, you don't fall back to the standard process of managing the contractor against the set of requirements. Stay focused on the outcome, let them let them continue to innovate and demonstrate that they can go from concept to proof of con to, from concept to prototype and prototype to pilot and pilot to scale um, and, and, and manage through that pro manage that the whole way through that process um, uh, to allow that the room for the creativity. And so challenge based acquisitions, I think, create the ability to get new ideas brought or this, these, as I said earlier, the novel application of something that exists in, in, and applying it into a new, uh, into a, into a new pro, to a new problem or a new context. 
Jim, great. Renee, take us home. What are some challenges, challenges, of course, or opportunities that government faces that you'd like to keep people focused on in the year ahead? In the year ahead, I'd like them to continue to focus on the people, uh, the folks that work inside the government and those that work outside, partnerships across governments, local, state, tribal, with our private sector as well. And the reason I want to do that is everybody's coming out of this pandemic, and some people are coming out of it literally, uh, and that, and we're all had a very different experience. We need to be cognizant that the last 15 months have presented challenges to us as individuals, as us as uh, families, uh, us as groups, in very different ways. And if we hit the ground like we were, where we were in early 2020 we're gonna forget to be compassionate and empathetic. And if you don't take care of the people, the work will not get taken care of. And so if we're gonna serve the country or serve those inside an agency or company in that, remember, we've all been through something very different. We can't assume we know. So be open your heart to listen and then give it some time and you'll be pretty amazed at how resilient humans can be. And I think you'd be better off just going at the right pace for what people can, uh, can tolerate. That's a wonderful way to end it. Jim Cook is the Vice President for Strategic Engagement Partnerships. Ed Miter Renee Wynn is the CEO of RB Wynn Consulting. Thank you both so much for joining us. We're gonna take a quick break. When we return, we're gonna hear from DH, former DHS CIO and industry executive Richard Spires on technology leadership and his new book. I'm Dave Wintergren and you're listening to Accelerating Government brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Hi, this is Derek T. Dortch, host of Fed Access. My show covers a lot of ground for current and future feds. Career advice to transitioning from military to civilian roles. We talk contracting for small and medium-sized businesses, veteran issues, and national security challenges from counterterrorism to defending against cyber attacks. Fed Access with Derek T. Dortch, Monday afternoons at 1 on Federal News Network, or subscribe to Fed Access on iTunes or Podcast One. Welcome back. You're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. I'm Dave Wintergren, CEO of ACT-IAC, and next up on today's show, I'm very excited to be joined by Richard Spires, a longtime leader in the federal technology market. Richard has served as CIO of both DHS and IRS, Vice Chair of the Federal CIO Council, CEO of Learning Tree and Resilient Network Systems, former Chair of ACT-IAC, an FCW Fed 100 Eagle Award winner, and so much more. I know you're going to enjoy hearing from Richard. Richard, welcome to the show. Dave, it's always great to be with you and uh, to support ACT-IAC. Richard, you've seen so much in your outstanding career. I just wanted to take a moment and reflect back on your time in this market and, and ask you, like, what's one of the biggest changes that you've witnessed over your career and what's one of the things that stayed the same? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the obvious answer to the change, of course, is the technology itself, right? I came out of school in 1984 and, I mean, so much of what we work with today didn't exist. I mean, you know, what we have in the palm of our hand is science fiction, so to speak. But actually, I think the bigger change that I've seen that I would reflect on that affects us is how we go about developing IT solutions for customers. I mean, it really, the, the process disciplines and, and moving from that traditional kind of project management approach, which frankly we didn't do very well, 
uh, for IT systems. It doesn't suit it very well. Into Agile and into now DevOps and DevSecOps. You know, it's just, a, it's just been a miraculous change that I think has been really, we've matured. And now, of course, we're buying more and more things as a service. So that's also a maturation of the industry, right? How do you purchase and things that we used to have to do custom, now you can just buy them off the shelf and turn them up in a day or less. And so that, that really, I think, is the biggest change. As far as what stayed the same, human nature doesn't really change. <laughs> and so all of the issues that go with you know, having to collaborate right and work in a large environment and the change management disciplines, I mean, yeah, we might have some new tools and new technologies to do things faster, but you're still dealing with human beings and, and, and you're dealing with all the emotions and, and how do you motivate and how do you lead? And, and that, that is all still right in front of us. When you work in really big organizations, it's hard to affect change. And, and I bet, you know, like the people thing is just so important. And I'm just wondering, as you look back on your time in the federal government, what are some of your fondest memories of the things that got done? The thing that, that strikes me so much about my federal government service was the when, you, when you're, even when you're supporting government from the outside, you don't have the sense that when you join an agency and you get to know the agency on the inside a bit, that sense of mission, it, it's amazing. At the IRS, it was stunning to me, just that sense of camaraderie and sense of mission. We're funding the U.S. government. And we were also one of the hated, most hated institutions in America, right? So there's a perverse sense of, you know, we have to bond together. We have to work together because of that fact. You know, and I felt that at IRS, and I felt that when I moved over at, at DHS. But, but I do want to point out one example that was really meaningful to me, Dave. We were uh, challenged by the then commissioner of the IRS. Uh, modernized e-file was just coming online, okay? And we were first working on the uh, tax returns for business, so businesses. And he wanted a mandate that the largest uh, corporations needed to e-file um, and couldn't do it by paper anymore because it was so inefficient. And so um, we got together as a team on the mission side and on, on, on the IT side, and we said, yeah, we can support this. And he did mandate it. And there was kind of this you know, chuckling in the streets kind of thing from major corporations saying, oh, the IRS will never make their, they'll never be able to, to do this and get it ready in time. And by God, over a year time frame, we worked, I mean, we, we had a governance meeting, board meeting every single week on modernized e-file at very senior levels. And it was like, remove all obstacles, get this done. And you know, it really taught me, and we were successful. And, and we were, it really taught me something about in a large organization, like a large federal government agency, if you can get alignment, okay, to a goal, and you can get everybody kind of rowing in the same direction, you can move mountains. And it, it was just a, a, such a meaningful thing in my career. Powerful stories, powerful stories about change. But I want to turn our attention to a subject that's near and dear to my heart, and that is you have a new book. It's called Success in the Technology Field, A Guide for Advancing Your Career. Uh, tell us a little bit about what inspired you after all these years of delivering results to turn around and, and write a book about your experiences for the next generation. Yeah, you know, as I explained in the preface of the book, it, it really started with a uh, a conference I was, uh, I was asked to, to speak at a number of years ago, you know, and they wanted something different. And they said, well, you've been around a long time and have done a lot of different things. Talk to us about your lessons learned about what it takes to be successful in IT. And so, you know, I put together some ideas and 
gave that uh, presentation and, and I was just shocked that you know, people came up to me afterwards and said, my goodness, that was good. And I really got a lot out of that. And so I decided to do it again at another conference. I ended up doing it twice more. And, and then I said, man, I've got to capture this somehow. And it was too much to just capture in an article. And I said, okay, I, I, need, to, I need to capture this in a book. And, and that's what really inspired me to do it. I have an advanced copy, so I feel very special about that. But I know our audience will be interested in how they get copies of it too. So can you tell a little bit of the audience about how and when you can purchase sure, the book? Sure, well, over the next month, this is all gonna roll out. And uh, you know, first, let me say that you know, I've got a website and it's real easy, successinthetechnologyfield.com. All right, so successinthetechnologyfield.com. And if you can't remember that, and you remember my name, Richard Spires, Go to my LinkedIn page and I'll have some information there about uh, how you can get to the book. But, but what I'm trying to do is make it very accessible for all readers. So you're going to be able to get the book in a, in a hardcover or paperback edition. I'm going to have an ebook uh, coming out as well as I'm actually right now in the throes of narrating my book so that you're going to be able to get it as an audible, uh, you know, in, in an audio book as well. So I want everybody to, be able to consume it the best way they want. Um, and it's going to be available, of course, on the major outlets. So it'll be available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, my publisher, um, BookLocker.com. If you go to them and you buy it off of them, and you and when you check out, if you put in Save Twenty in as a, a code, you can get twenty percent off of the book. Okay, so book, remember that BookLocker.com. But the most important thing is just remember the title and go to Success in the technology field.com and be all the information about the book and, and how you can buy it and the like. The book focuses on 12 recommendations of covering three behaviors and nine actions. We obviously won't be able to dig into all of them today, but I would like to give the audience a taste of some of the points you make in the book. You, you talk a lot about behavior and integrity. I too am a big believer that uh, to use the words of the late Dr. Jack London, your character will absolutely determine the kind of life that you will live. What caused you to lead the book with integrity and why do you think that's so important? Yeah, yeah. in fact, the title of that chapter is Be a Person of Integrity. There is nothing more important. And I truly believe that, Dave. It's, it's, uh, it's made such a difference in my career, of, 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 in my mind, always trying to be a person of integrity. You know, and it's not always easy. I mean, you know, integrity is defined as being honest and being morally upright. And, you know, honesty is pretty straightforward. Um, and people really get that concept. And I'm not saying that people are always honest, but you understand it. But being morally upright is harder. I mean, you're dealing with sometimes very complex human situations. I uh, discuss some examples in the book of things that I was in, involved with where you, you had to get to the truth and then you had to, to make some hard decisions. And, you know, and, 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 and I did. And in one case, I actually walked away from a lucrative position because I, I felt like if I didn't, I would be violating my own integrity. So, you know, I, I think it is that important because in the end, it forges your reputation. And, uh, and, and believe me, it, it, you know, it's, quote, if you think of the technology field, it's very large, and yet, in some ways, it's very small. And you, and, and you are about your reputation uh, when it comes to your career. And it's very, very important, and at least for me, and I think should be for everybody, to have a reputation for integrity. 
well said. My, my mentoring advice to young people is never needlessly annoy people because you're going to keep running into them over and over again. But, <laughs> That's right. but perhaps less, less flippantly and more, more importantly, you know, Larry Bossidy had that great quote about leaders get the behaviors that they themselves exhibit and tolerate. And, and you make that point so extremely well. We're going to take a quick break now. And when we return, we're going to continue our conversation with Richard Spires, longtime central technology industry thought leader and author of Hi, this is Derek T. Dorch, host of Fed Access. My show covers a lot of ground for current and future fans. Career advice transitioning from military to civilian roles. We talk contracting for small and medium-sized businesses, veteran issues, and national security challenges from counterterrorism to defending against cyber attacks. Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch, Monday afternoons at 1 on Federal News Network, or subscribe to Fed Access on iTunes or Podcast One. Welcome back. You're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. I'm Dave Wintergren, and in this segment, we continue our conversation with Richard Spires, well-known federal technology leader, longtime friend of mine, somebody I admire greatly, and now an author of a soon-to-be-released book, Success in the Technology Market, A Guide for Advancing Your Career. Richard, let's pick up our conversation uh, from where we left off. Another theme that comes up in the book is the theme of agility and speed seen particularly as challenging in large organizations like federal agencies. And so I wonder what's some advice that you have for government leaders about agility in large organizations, particularly when I'll say technology changes faster than policy often does. Yeah, yeah, good point. Um, yeah, there's no doubt uh, many government agencies are challenged, right, to keep pace with evolving technology and process disciplines. Um, but I, I, you know, rather than viewing that ne necessarily as a negative, maybe we should turn that around and view it as a positive, right? I mean, it's a chance. And I think, you know, what I saw relatively early in your career, um, if you're in government, you know, to be a leader. And, and being a leader isn't just about, you know, having a title or, or managing people. I mean, some of the most successful people I've, I've worked with in the technology field you know, don't lead people. I mean, they don't manage people. They're, they're great individual contributors. And I talk about that in the book and give some examples. And, and so you can, you can lead in many different ways. And I think in government agencies, those that struggle sometimes with change, sometimes it's that spurring it from the bottom, if you will, from having smaller successes and from the ground up that can lead to bigger change over time is a way to really get some things going. And so I actually think in those situations that you should view it um, as an opportunity, an opportunity to help drive change within an agency. That positive attitude, I think, comes out throughout the book. Uh, you, one of your chapter titles is Enjoy the Ride. Besides being another example of your positive attitude, what were you hoping the reader would take away from that insight? You know, one of the foundational things about the book, Dave, is that you want a career in which you enjoy what you're doing, that you're innately good at what you do, okay? And that gives you real satisfaction, okay? Beyond, you know, satisfaction in the sense of being greater than yourself, of helping society and the like. And when you can get that alignment of those three things together, I call that kind of finding your passion, that you found a passion in your life. And oh my God, isn't it great if your passion aligns up with what you have to do to, and work every day? And when you do that, you know, then you're enjoying the ride. You're enjoying the, you know, it's, things get easier. I mean, not saying that you don't have to work hard, but my goodness, if you have passion for what you're doing, everything is easier. 
easier to you know spend those extra hours that you need to and and you know and 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 you know jobs are there's always things about jobs you don't like but if you're doing what you're passionate about again all of that becomes much easier and so i really urge people particularly earlier in their career you know don't settle you know don't settle but keep looking for that passion um and once you find it um you, you're on your way to a very successful career you mentioned a couple of times now this this idea about what really matters and, and that's just so important i think as people advance through their careers to more senior leadership positions it seems like those initial skills that may have gotten you launched on your technology career technical experience and subject matter expertise begin to be replaced to a certain degree with a focus on leadership and management skills a subject that you touch on in multiple chapters of the book about expertise and project management and leadership what's your advice for our audience about sort of navigating this journey about the things that brought you here aren't necessarily the things that will take you there as you as your success rises you up to a different type of position yeah that, that, that's absolutely right now i should say again everybody's unique and they have different career aspirations and so there, there are individuals that, and, and this is just fantastic if this was what they want, that want to remain individual contributors. Um, but for many of us, you know, we aspire to run organizations and uh, to be leaders of people. And, and, you, and you're right. So you come out of school, and, and what is my advice? And I have a whole you know, chapter on this, is really work to become an expert in something. And you know, it can be a, an element of technology, a product, a process discipline, but really work to become a true expert. And I, and I talk about ways to go about doing that. But then as you move into management of people, get ready for that too. So I, I, another chapter talks about this idea of preparing yourself, taking classes, having a mentor that can help you, okay, when you struggle with management. Because one of the hardest things about people management is when you first start doing it. You're a junior manager, you're essentially managing people that are younger in their career. So both of you are kind of inexperienced in, in what your roles are. And, and that can lead to some real issues. So get ready to become a manager. You know, and this of course is very individual. When you start to make that shift where all of a sudden that expertise that you had early in your career becomes less and less relevant is an individual thing depending on your career. But there is that time that all of a sudden you becoming more and more expert in management and leadership of people, okay, outweighs that subject matter, that subject matter expertise. And, you know, and, and so navigating that, uh, hopefully the, the book in the way the chapters are laid out and the career arc of the recommendations helps you through that process for you as an individual. You offer some great advice about career planning in the book as well. I've often found that people fall into perhaps one of two camps, those with rigorous and structured career plans and those who are more, shall we say, opportunistic and flexible. What's your take on the right balance in career planning to both maintain a purpose and being open to possibilities? One of the chapters is called Plan for Your Career, Be Flexible in Its Execution, which I think is getting at the hopefully both sides of what you're saying. I'm a huge believer and really strongly recommend that you have a written career plan, okay? And even if you're, you're just starting out, think about where you wanna be 30 years from now. I mean, that's okay. It, you know, and, and, and start to think about what that would mean because what you wanna do is put, your on a, put yourself on a path. And it's, it's amazing how if you start down that path, how that can really accelerate your career advancement. But 
you know, you may change your mind five or 10 or 15 years from now. That's okay. Oh, or something may pop up that all of a sudden it's such a wonderful opportunity that vectors you off of what that plan is. That's also okay. In fact, one of the best decisions I ever made was to go into government at the IRS when I first went into government. I mean, it was turned out to be a great decision for my career, yet that was not part of my career planning when I, when I laid out my career plan and executed. So you gotta be, you know, want to plan so you can make real progress, but be very, very open to opportunities and assess all the good opportunities that come your way um, meaningfully. Yeah, we'll do a lightning round now as we as we get close to the end of the segment. I did want to just briefly touch on, you know, you make the point that technology may be your field, but to be successful, you need to understand the business. So you say a few words about that. Yeah, it's so important. And in fact, one of the best compliments I ever got was from the IRS commissioner when I became the CIO. And he said that, hey, one of the reasons I picked you or offered you the job was because I, I felt like you'd really learned our business. And, you know, if, if you're going to be in the IT or technology field, you know, it's, very, it's rarely an end in and of itself. It's almost always there to serve others, you know, serve, you know, serve another business, uh, serve a government agency, whatever it may be. And so you need to have that attitude. And the more you're more and more valuable, the more you understand the business or in a government agency, the mission. And so you can apply technology to help solve problems or, 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 or help the organization to perform better. Um, that's some of the most valuable people in any organization today. And if you really want to accelerate your career, that's, that's certainly a way to go about doing it. There's so much that we could talk about if we had more time. I encourage all of our readers to, to, to buy Richard's new book. It's, it's just, you know, he's, he's learned from experience. He makes the point about how powerful mentoring is. And, uh, and he's, he's living that by the work that he's done, both in his leadership in the public sector and private sector, and also in authoring this book. I'm just so delighted to have had a chance to chat with you today, Richard. An outstanding leader, an outstanding individual, somebody I just admire greatly, and now author of the new book, Success in the Technology Field, A Guide for Advancing Your Career. Thank you so much for being with us today, Richard. Well, thank you, Dave. And I want to say also thank you for you being such a strong leader and, uh, and your mentorship of me. You've given me some solid advice over the years, and I really, really do appreciate that. <laughs> on today's episode, we focus on the need for innovative solutions and approaches and offering that you're not alone out there, that there are ways to affect change where you can build upon the work of others. Great things are going on across the federal technology market. We were also reminded how crucial it is to be a continuous learner and also take the time to help mentor and coach the next generation of leaders. Working together, industry and government, there are just so many opportunities to accelerate government mission outcomes. I'm Dave Wintergren. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you'll be back for our next episode. You've been listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Thanks for listening to Accelerating Government with ACT-IAC. You can listen to this episode and past episodes anytime in your podcast feed. Search for Accelerating Government on Podcast One, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts.